Let's read the scripture this morning and let's just dive in together to the word of God. I'm going to read from Genesis 2, um, starting with verse 4, because that's where this this passage really actually begins. Sometimes the chapters happen in weird places in the Bible. All right, it begins this way. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And the name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, is it not good that the man should be alone? I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, to kick off Lent, because we started the Lent season, which is a part of the Christian calendar, where we spend 40 days particularly focused on God leading up till Easter. In, in anticipation of that and kind of an honoring of Ash Wednesday, which was on this last week, I wanted to lead us into this experience of seeking the God of the garden. Douglas Adams called himself a radical atheist. He was the author of the well-known science fiction books, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which were hilarious. Um, and he says, isn't it enough to see that the garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too. 
And the English pastor, Andrew Wilson, talked about this. He said this was his way. This was, Will, this was Adam's way of saying that belief in a creator was unnecessary. If you come across a beautiful garden, then the right response is to appreciate its beauty for its own sake, rather than inventing all sorts of mythical creatures and pretending they live there. That, he argued, is what people do when they believe in God. They encounter a world that is very beautiful, filled with incredibly complex and magnificent creatures. And what they should do is just appreciate it for what it is. But Wilson goes on, says, you have to be careful with parables, though. They can backfire. Of course, a beautiful garden would not make me believe in fairies, but it might make me believe in a gardener. But this is challenging because if we look around right now or if you read the news or if you're like me and you went downtown last Friday morning, 5 a.m. and walked around downtown, you would say there is a lot of beauty, but there's also incredible tragedy. When I was on this prayer walk and it was still dark and I was with four guys walking around praying for the city before most people had waken up and got it started on their day. One of the guys just burst out. We we're all praying out loud. And he says, God, where the heck are you? So it's a bit worse than that. But basically what he was saying is, God, I'm, I don't know where you are right now. There are people dying. There are 1.3 million refugees fleeing from Ukraine right now. Downtown Portland looks like a ghost town. There's boarded up businesses. There's graffiti. Where are you, God? Now, my friend was contending with God. He wasn't disbelieving or he wouldn't have addressed him, but he was contending. But he brought up a real point that there is a challenge to believe in a God behind the beauty when the world seems like it's changed for the worse overnight. And so my big statement for us this morning is that worship is key when we're losing hope. Worship of our God is key, a remedy for desiring the things that we're going to grab, the forbidden fruits, fruits when we're losing hope, is actually to praise God, to remember his goodness, to remember that God has not forgotten you, us, or this world, that instead we forget who he is and the answer to that. The answer to us forgetting or thinking he's forgotten us is to adore him and find his goodness. We need to seek the God of the garden. So this is a very famous Flemish painting of the Garden of Eden. And you'll see, of course, that there is a big tree in the front and lots of animals around the tree of life. There's also a tree in the back. And Adam and Eve, if you can see them, are back there. And this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a serpent around that tree. Most paintings make this tree look really, really attractive. Because the forbidden fruit always seems like a good idea at the time. It always seems better than the other options. But why is it so attractive if it's so bad? Because anytime you reach for the forbidden fruit and take and eat in life, it's a time where you've reached a point where you decide to misbehave because it's what you need. 
It's what's best for you right now. In the back of your mind, your excuse when you take of the forbidden fruit of life, when you disobey God, when you act out of anger or rage or jealousy, is that God doesn't understand what this is like for me. God doesn't understand me. If he understood, he would see that this is okay right now because I need this. Because I'm not whole without it. i got to have it. And our first step today is to remember, don't eat from that tree. Don't eat from that tree. And this is fitting for the Lent season because the Lent season is known for fasting, for repentance, for self-sacrifice, for giving. The message of Lent is actually don't eat from that tree. Practice restraint. But I want to show you today that that alone, God knows, won't work. And in fact, the serpent twisted that very command to make us feel like God doesn't want you to have what you need. The serpent wanted Eve to focus on the don'ts and wanted to twist who God was. And this is what we are tempted to do with God's commands when he doesn't give us what we want, is we say he's withholding it from me and I don't know if I like you anymore, God. It might be, where are you, God? Or it might be, God, I'm angry at you. God, I want something and you're not giving it to me. What does the serpent say? How does he twist who God was? He says, you won't surely die. Right? So he changes the commandment. He lies about the result of sin. And then he says, God just doesn't want your eyes to be opened all the way. He lies about the character of God, that God is keeping something good from us. And God says, don't eat from that tree. Don't listen to that serpent. Essentially, okay, in Lent, the 40 days that we're going through right now are a mirror of the 40 years of Israel walking through the wilderness. This is what the pattern came from. So we are living out in micro the 40 year journey in the wilderness that Israel took after coming through the Red Sea into the desert before Sinai, the wilderness. And remember, what did they do once they got into the wilderness? They were grumbling, they were complaining, they were in despair, they had a lack of hope. They said, God has abandoned us to die out here. But what does God do? He provides manna. If you read it closely, he provides shoes and clothing that just won't wear out. He has fire and smoke to lead them. He provides a law, a civil law to protect them and build a whole society. And they're grumbling. And Moses tells them essentially, don't eat of that tree. Don't eat of the grumbling tree. Don't eat of the complaining tree. What you need to do is worship. Because Moses knew that when we mistake God's protection for a penalty, we have eaten from the wrong tree. It's not the tree of life we're eating. God is not an imprisoning God. He is a freeing God. He is a God of life and not of death. So if we're getting bitter at God, we need some perspective and we need to praise him. 
So I wanna jump into Genesis 2 here. And first, I just wanna look at the number of ways that just in this creation text, we can see that we have a God who has not forgotten us. As I was thinking about the God of the garden, I was looking at John 20. And if you remember in John's story of the resurrection of Jesus, Mary comes up to the empty tomb of Jesus and she says, they've taken my Lord. And then she sees Jesus, but she thinks he's a gardener. I've always liked that image. Jesus, the gardener. In some mysterious way, Jesus is present with the Trinitarian God of the garden in this creation story. If you remember Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, that is kind of like a song version of the creation. And then this is another way of explaining the creation. This is not a sequel. This is a reinterpretation. This is going, first we have the cosmic reality of the the stars and the sun and the, the water separated from the land. Now we have a picture that's much more stark and contained of a piece of land with dust and mist on it. And God brings the man and he forms him out of the dust. So as we're looking at this text, what can we praise God about in this beautiful picture? Well, it says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. He was soul was filled with God's breath. Now who is serving who? here. Who is serving who? Think about it. Are we God's slaves? Is he some cosmic taskmaster? If if he is breathing life and creating us out of nothing, he's totally the provider. When a mother has a child, who is she serving? Is she serving herself or her child? She brings the child into being. And once a mother has a child, won't she go to great lengths, perhaps even sacrificing her own life for her child, which of course is exactly what God does. So who is God serving? By creating us, he is charging himself with parenting us. Verse eight, and the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four four rivers. Now, I could geek out here a long time, but I'll move quick. The Lord God planted a garden within Eden. I've never thought about it this way. But what this is looking at is this is looking at an ancient Near Eastern storytelling mode method that happened a lot. In the ancient Near East, there would be a palace garden and it was always next to the king's castle. So if you look at the writing of this, the people at the time reading this would have recognized that this is a garden next to the residence of the king. East of Eden itself. Eden means delight or pleasure or heaven. And the waters roll out from Eden, the waters of delight, the waters of pleasure. And they flow down to the garden. N.T. Wright says that this is God's residence and man's residence. Their spaces are interlocking and interacting. I thought like Eden was just in the complete presence of God. It was all like one big lump. 
But here we see that God planted a garden in Eden to the east and he put man there. So this is a separate domain from God's presence, but they interlock, they're interconnected. Eden is a nexus point. This garden is where the king would go out and he would tend it and care for it and enjoy it and spend time in it and rest in it. This is the image that the writers are actually painting for the readers of the story in their time. And they would have totally got it that God is curating this garden. And it's a place, a garden for a king is going to be a place that has walls, boundaries, a gardener. It's going to be selective. It's going to be tailor-made. It's designed for humankind. We are made with the breath of God, but we are not God. We are not his equals. We have God's likeness, but not his total essence. We are humankind. He is divine. He is the great gardener king. And God's intentions for us are good. He gave us life itself. He gave us bodies. He gave us the ability to choose. He gave us food. He gives us a place to call home. Everything we have is because of our great God. Verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Wait a second. I'm in heaven, the place of delight the place of pleasure, and I'm gonna have to work? I'm going to have to guard something in paradise? Man, when I go on vacation, I don't wanna have to do any work. I don't wanna have any purpose when I'm on vacation. And when we think of the Garden of Eden, or we think of heaven, we have a similar thought, don't we? We think when I get to heaven, I'm just gonna be on one big vacation in Barbados, man. It's, I don't have to do anything. It's all about me. Go to the bar, go to the pool. Like, it's just going to be great. But this is not the image that God has of paradise, of the paradise that man needs. When I'm in heaven, I'm not going to be a person who isn't following any rules. Heaven is not going to be a place where I can do whatever I want and where I don't have anyone to tell me what to do. So don't live your life trying to get to a place where you're completely independent in your own authority. It's a dead end is what this story tells us. In other words, don't eat from that tree. Don't eat from that tree of complete independence and autonomy. God gives us a purpose, a role to play. He creates actually a partnership. It says, God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Can God keep the garden? Well, I mean, think about it. Can God keep the garden? Of course he can keep the garden. He created the garden. So what is he doing? He's appointing us and he's actually serving us by having us serve the order of his design. It is a service to us for mankind to have a purpose. He's actually serving mankind by involving us in his projects. In other ancient Near Eastern myths, the gods created humans as their slave people. And then the gods left and the humans had to do all the hard work. And so this story in many ways is a comparison 
of those, and it's a contrast. All these other stories about creation floating around the ancient Israelites. They're going to encounter them. They're going to hear about them. Ours is different. Those are not about the true God. Many scholars believe that this whole biblical creation story is a contra story. It's opposed to the other stories. The other cultures have multiple gods. The Israelites have one God, Yahweh. And he has created his people to be in benevolent partnership, cared for and provided for. And it's linked to an early instruction. If you remember Genesis 1, there's a similar instruction to what we just heard. God, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that crawls upon the earth. That's the similar mandate set in a different way. But what does 128 show us? It shows us something important. God's instruction is blessing. It says God blessed them and said to them. God's instruction for us is his blessing for us. He didn't bless us and then curse us with work. He blessed us with purpose. So there is a kind of work that we do that is truly good and purposeful for us. God has not forgotten us even in our work. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now this gets us to like the major issue that people have with God. Why did he give us the choice to sin? Like, why are we here the way we are? But see, even that idea, when you hear the word forbidden fruit and you get frustrated, that's a problem. Our problems run that deep. Don't eat of that tree. Don't let the devil twist God's character for you. The gardener God is a wise God. In the Greek, they talk about God being the log logos, right? Jesus is the word. And what it meant is he's the order. He's the wisdom of the universe. So this is the wise gardener who knew that living, multiplying, flourishing, working is actually Part of all of that is knowing how to exercise restraint. The tree that has the forbidden fruit is a sign that to live well is to know when not to do something. We can see that just in Genesis 2. To, obedient, to be obedient to what we are told to do, even though we may see something we think is better. And that is a lesson all of us can remember every day. God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, what did God even do? He didn't work. He exercised restraint, rest. It's not good to work all the time. Don't eat of the workaholic tree. The wise gardener, gardener God gives us this leadership and direction. He teaches us restraint. And this is a parent's love. A parent cannot be loving if they don't teach a child how to exercise restraint, how to be obedient. 
To be given the gift of choice and to live wisely is to need the guidance of restraint. All you have to know, all you need to know is if you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? What do you need to do if you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet? You got to exercise some restraint or the next day you're going to be in big trouble. (laughs) The Lord God said, verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And I won't read all of this, but he listens and he sees that all of the, of the life on earth isn't fulfilling Adam completely. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed it in place of his flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, and this is so beautiful, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This at last. Now, you might already be going, woman taken out of man, what is going on? I'm not a helper to a man. Don't eat from that tree. Or you might say to the men in the room, you might say, I don't need any help from God or any woman. Don't eat from that tree. God is a listening God who listens to our needs and he knows that mankind, Megan, Arthur, Ron, Andy, he knows that just you and God is actually not enough. That's what this tells us. Now that's wild because we've all heard that all you need is Jesus, right? Everybody's heard that. Well, all you need is Jesus. I mean, you're lonely. All you need is Jesus. You shouldn't be lonely. No, This text tells us that God looked into Adam's eyes and he says, you need a friend. (laughs) Isn't that helpful? Isn't that helpful to know that God listens to our needs and he knows. He loves us with a parent's love. And it means that our design, our actual biological makeup is not whole without human community. So, just to round out this, this first point of who God is and is he forgetting us? We can see that we have a, we're seeking a God in the garden. We can remember God has not forgotten us. He is our loving parent. He is giving us life, place, purpose, choice with the blessing of instruction because I don't want choices if I don't know which one's the right one to make. Restraint and community. What do we do? What do we do? We all know how this next part goes. Next page in your Bible, Genesis 3. What are they back there doing? What are they back there? Don't eat! Right? And they're way back in the distance of the painting, listening to the serpent. What we do is we forget who he is. We forget who God is. So quickly we forget. Humankind did not gain choice when we ate the apple. That is not what gave us free will. We had free will to begin with. When we ate the apple, we poisoned free will. 
You can have choices and not make bad ones. God gave Adam the ability to make choices and he told them, just don't make the bad ones. Trust me, know who I am, know how good I am and trust me, worship me. If you worship me, if you're in awe of me, if you adore me, you won't wanna make the bad choices. But they did, and the choice they made was to forget who God is, focusing on the commands, but not on the worship. And they began to believe lies about who God is. And it tastes so good for a minute. We forget God anytime. We give in to anger and rage, and that power feels so good. Just a little taste, it just feels so good. We have control, man. We're in control. Jealousy and envy, for just a second, it goes, oh man, I feel so fulfilled just imagining that thing I don't have. Anytime we use our judgment and not his, we go, oh yeah, that's, see, that's the way that should have gone. That's what that person should do. Anytime we withhold our love, we go, ah, now they're coming back to me. See, now I got the power, I'm withholding the love. Anytime we seek to curse, and not to bless, we get a little taste of that godlike power, but it's poisoned. And this brings us to the first promise in the Bible, which is in this text, right in the heart of it, verse 15 through 17. You may surely eat of any tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is called the first covenant in the Bible, the first promise command with a condition. God makes a promise and he says, I promise you this and if this, then this, right? It's like a contract. And he says, this is what's gonna happen. One author puts this this way, God promises Adam life and blessing, but that promise is conditional upon Adam's obedience to God's commands not to eat of the fruit of the tree. Adam's penalty for disobedience would be physical and spiritual death as well as a curse on the ground, so that Adam would have to work harder to grow crops. We see that in Genesis 4. One of the results of Adam's sin was that he would have to toil all of the days until his death. And he writes this, and I think this is good. The key to God's unfolding plan of redemption is this. It shows humans' inability to maintain a right relationship with God, even when they are in the earthly paradise that God created for them. We have proven that even if we could have it all, we can succumb to the temptation to forget God. And this is sin. Romans 5.12, Paul writes, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so sin spread to all men because all have sinned. If you haven't sinned, then maybe you can get out of this one. Good luck. Paul writes to the Corinthians in verse, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion, similar word is worship, your thoughts will be led away from worship to Jesus. So all this is, all the devil's trying to do is get you away from worship. 
And he'll do it in a lot of ways. We know that sin comes from first an ancient spiritual conflict between God and the devil. That's how the serpent's there to begin with. That has been baked into our fallen bodies and minds. That's what we call the flush. And then we've multiplied like rabbits. And now we have sin all over the world. Okay? So sin is in the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three different sources. You will see it from everywhere else, from all the other sinful people. You will feel it within yourself. And at the root of all of it is Satan himself. Explains a lot about our pain in the world. And one justifiable thing for us to say, although I would be careful because if you're a person prone to be angry, it can infect other parts of you. It's just like a petty little rebellious boy to say, I hate you, Satan. I just hate you. I mean, we should hate Satan. He is the origin of sin. See, the fundamental question the serpent asks isn't just, is God your protection or your prison? It's, is he worthwhile or is he worthless? Like right now, I get out of church, I go home, something doesn't go the way I want. God, what are you doing? Are you worthwhile or are you worthless? You're not showing up where I want you right at the second I'm having an argument I didn't think I was gonna have. I've got traffic, whatever. You, I'm frustrated. Is he worthwhile in that moment or is he worthless? In light of everything we've just read in Genesis 2, is he worthwhile even when you're not feeling it? Or is he worthless? That's the question. And that draws us to worship. So when we look around at the world right now, we say, can God hack it? with how the world is right now. Just go worship him, and you will see that he absolutely can. But a lot of people are ringing in right now that God is not very useful. The world definitely needs guidance, just not from God, because look at what's happening. But Genesis two and three tell me this is not a God problem. This is a Satan problem, and now it's a people problem because we're infected by the evils of the rebellion against a good God. All of this is a people problem, and at the root of it is the evil deceiver. So what happens in Genesis 3? After they've forgotten God, God has expelled them from the garden. The cherubim guard the edges of the garden with a flaming sword that goes in every direction. It's quite an image to keep humankind from the tree of life so that we cannot live forever once we sin. Which, by the way, I had this thought, neither can Satan. Satan cannot live forever. That's kind of nice to remember. Satan is not on par with God. He has sinned and he has a promised end. He might seem to be living a little bit too long, <laughs> but Jesus will come again and he will kill the dragon. So God did expel us, but in a way, if we really think about this story in our good parent, who really expelled themselves? We did. Individually, collectively, if you're a murderer and you murder somebody and you know the law, is the, is, is, are the police imprisoning you? 
Or have you just imprisoned yourself? Do you have any right to be bitter that you've gotten imprisoned when you knew the law and you disobeyed it? When we forget God, we find ourselves in a prison of our own making. So when we think about Ash Wednesday, which the, the kind of the big line of Ash Wednesday, if you think about it, people putting the black crosses on their forehead if they're Catholic. From dust we come into dust we return. It's admitting that we are in desperate need of God, just desperate need of God. So that gets us to kind of, let's talk about worship now for a minute. Okay, we know God has not forgotten us. We know it is us who has forgotten God. And we need to seek him out through worship. What does seeking him look like? Well, he's actually given us a purpose, right? He's given us instructions. In Genesis 2, we can see what worship is. You wouldn't think of this as the passage to pick on worship, but we can see what it is. God gave us life, bodies, and an eternal soul. I'm a firm believer. He gave us an eternal soul. What you have will go on forever in some way, shape, or form. It just depends on what you do with it, how that's going to look for you. And he created us to be relational. We will worship relationally. We are meant to be with Jesus in this intersection, in the garden next to the palace, to walk in the cool of the day with the wise gardener. We are meant to be communal. To be communal and be with others is to be in worship of the creator. If we are with Jesus and we are together, that is a form of worship. That's what we do at the church. And there's also a functional component. He says, now shape the world with me. Guard it and keep it. Care for it. Name the animals. When we are following God's purpose, we are in worship. Looking back at Genesis 2 helps us know who we are and what we were meant to be so that we can praise the one who gave us all of that. Isaiah 51, one verses, eight, verses one through eight, taught, it shows us what it means to praise our creator, gardener God. Isaiah writes, listen to me, you who, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, that's very much Genesis 2, and to the quarry from which you were dug. From dust, God formed the man. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah who bore you, for he was but one who called him. Abraham was just one. That I might bless him and multiply him. Be fruitful and multiply. And who blessed him and multiplied him? Who is the one who makes us fruitful and multiplies us? God. For the Lord comforts Zion, which is Jerusalem, the, mount, the mountain with the temple and the people of God. For God comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. A law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people. In other words, don't eat that tree. Because of all of this worship, 
Remember all of who you are. Remember what I do for you. Don't eat of that tree. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. My arm they wait. For my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. That's a God you can worship. That's a God you can trust. Isaiah and Genesis 2 both tell us something really important. In verse 3 in Isaiah 51, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. We got ourselves into this mess, but who gets us out? We can't get ourselves out of this mess. The Lord makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. So important to remember that. We are in partnership with God, but when we look out in the world, we are not getting out of this mess. He is getting us out of this mess. So the story of humankind, when they leave the Garden of Eden, they travel east of Eden, the story of Israel is that Shortly thereafter, to be near to God will be related to sacrifice. Remember, Abel and Cain is one of the next stories that happens. And what are they doing? They're sacrificing to God. This is how they ask for his presence, for his blessing. This is how they atone and repent and show and sacrifice for themselves to show their heart that they are willing to give of themselves because they understand the penalty that they made. They're willing to pay the cost. And these altars become Eden-like intersection zones between man and God. That's what an altar is. And so this sacrificial culture starts. And what happens? For humans, we think, well, it's pretty bad. I need to do these sacrifices. And pretty soon we realize we can't pay it. Like, I can't do enough. It's all up to God. I can sacrifice something for him. I can, I can really try to atone. Like if you offend your wife or your husband or a good friend, what do you try and do? You try and make it up to them. That's all a sacrifice really is. I'm trying to make it up to you, God, but we can never make it up. It's really up to God what he's going to do, just like it's up to your spouse or friend what they're going to do when you try and make it up. It's really the ball's in their court. So what we have to remember is we don't want to eat from the tree that tells us that our mistakes can actually change the heart of God for us. See, we lie to ourselves and we go, I've screwed up too much for God to love me. I've screwed up too much. I said I wouldn't do it again and I did it again. He's not going to love me this time. But don't eat from that tree. God's heart will never change for you. God does not think less of you than someone else in this room. Think of the prodigal son parable. He loves all his children, even those who leave, and he will embrace them when they return. 
God has taken a responsibility for you by creating you and for all of those that call him father. And he may at time allow wandering, but he desires for you to come home. Paul writes again in Corinthians 1, 15 through 22, sorry, 15 verse 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Jesus himself is God who came to die for his children, death on the cross and resurrection, and that becomes the door of hope for us, his people. God's character did not change after we sinned. He's still our father, and he wants you to come home. That's why Christianity is primarily not a religion, it's a relationship. And it is worship of God, of the Father, that will give us hope. But what we tend to do is we tend to build up grievances. And that's what's happening in the world right now. Russia has grievances against the world. They're invading Ukraine because they say, the world has not been fair to us. That's the narrative. The narrative that they're telling their people is, the world has not been fair to Russia and we deserve what's rightfully ours. And so we will take and eat. It's similar to Germany after World War I. After, if, if you know any of the history of World War II, after World War I, Germany had so many grievances. And they, there was all these economic sanctions imposed on them. And they said, the world hasn't been fair to us. The reason we're suffering is because of everybody else. So they took and they ate. We don't want to eat from that tree. To seek God, we have to let go of our grievances against him, which means we have to let go of the ways we've been wronged in our life that is fueling us. And we need to release those to him and move forward. We don't want to look back at the garden. We want to look forward to where God is bringing us forward to him, worshiping him forward, not looking back in regret, not looking at the cherubim with the sword flaming around the garden, not looking about what we've lost, but looking forward to who will bring us home. The devil is in the business of devastation and keeping us looking backward. God moves us forward and keeps our eyes on him in worship, in hopeful worship. So I use these countries to show the gravity of what grievances can do, but it's amazing how quickly we can delve on how we've come up short or how we can victimize ourselves to believe that the world has, has pushed us to the curb. And what we do is we will begin to realize that curse just out of thin air on ourselves and it will begin to deform us. So don't eat of that tree. Worship the God who will save you from this world and turn our wilderness into Eden. He actually gives us an inward garden for us. We're in the already and the not yet. God, Jesus says, abide in me. You can be in a place of peace, even though the world is in turmoil. And someday we will be in the constant presence of Jesus and what that will mean is not that we're back to innocence again. Going to heaven is not to return to childlike innocence. 
Even in heaven, we will always remember sin because that is true wisdom. True wisdom is to remember sin and know that it is because the presence of Jesus and his forgiveness that we are whole. That is to become wise, to become completely dependent on Jesus's forgiveness for our wholeness is true wisdom. We will then be child, children of the true parent. And so we're going forward to a new garden that we see in Revelation 21 and 22. And this has all sorts of Eden parallels. Genesis or Revelation 22 verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystals flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations, of the grievances. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. They will know his forgiveness and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light or lamp of the sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That's the beauty of the forgiveness that we get and the partnership it brings us into. So this Lent season, let's seek the God of the garden. Let's remember that God has not forgotten us. It is us who forget him. And let's worship him because of the cross of Jesus. Let's pray.